Good morning, everyone. I'd like to explore a little bit today why we're here on this beautiful um, morning, which is at the cusp of the change of the seasons. We can already see that and feel that. So what brings us together here to sit in silence, in stillness, and then to listen and speak to one another? So the way I'd like to explore this topic, what is it that brings us together, is through looking a little bit at some parts of our meditation practice, this this strange and wonderful practice that we do, awareness, questioning, and compassion. And I'd like to particularly explore how this practice illuminates the workings of our mind and the possibilities for our actions through awareness, questioning, and compassion. We could call ourselves unique synthesizers, each one of us, from the complex conditions of our lives make meaning of the world. It's really quite remarkable how we do this from our own singular and unrepeatable experiences that come to us through our senses, which of course includes our mind. And this all happens mostly at a level that we're not aware of, which is very handy for most processes, such as the autotomic nervous system We wouldn't want to have to think about every time our heart beat or even every time we took a breath, although that's one of the things we do in in this meditation practice. Focus on our breath. Um, But once we get to the higher level functions of living, the ones that call for choices and actions, and that is to say another way, once we get into the sphere of consciousness, awareness, we can see that unawareness often leads us to delusory fixations and obsessions and to actions which are um, at the best habitual and at the other end of the pole can lead us to harm ourselves and others. So these delusions and fixations that we can bring awareness to through our meditation practice, of course, can be many and they can vary with our individual circumstances. But there are some that we all share as human beings. And the Buddha described the major three of these, the famous marks of being, he called them in one text, the marks of being for all humans. And the first is this unsatisfactoriness of being out of control. 
Because fundamentally in the central facts of being born and dying, and also in much of what happens in between, we're not in control. And we recognize this at a very deep level, which gives rise to an existential uneasiness, a kind of chafing that we feel. This is what the Buddha was describing. The Pali text word for this is dukkha, which is often translated as suffering. But this isn't the suffering of being ill or not having our needs met or or grieving the loss of a loved one, for example. This is this irreducible, seemingly, internal anguish, this angst that no matter how we try to control our situation and no matter how much we want to make our circumstances pleasant for ourselves and for those we love, um, we we can't find the end of. This suffering is always there underneath when we turn our attention to it. And that's one of the first things we see when we sit and still. The second delusion, fixation that the Buddha described is the fact that we're profoundly provisional. In every moment between birth and death, we're changing and being changed. And not only us, but everything we know from galaxies to atoms and subatomic particles. And that gives rise to a certain uneasiness too, or that uneasiness is there if we attune to it. We know that. And finally, the last of these three marks that the Buddha described is that we don't exist in any discrete material sense. And once again, neither does anything else, as modern physics shows us. We exist only relationally. When we we begin to take things apart, as we've taken a lot of things apart as human beings, in other words, through analysis, particularly scientific analysis, um, we see that there are finer and finer particles of things, but they're always in relation to other particles. And so far, at least, we haven't come to the end of these particles. Um, Physicists discover new kaons and particles that didn't exist even two years ago. So here, looking at these three facts of existence, looks like a pretty gloomy picture, actually. So where's the wiggle room? I mean, what, what can we do about this? What's the point of acting at all? And of course, the Buddha just didn't stop with, the, with that analysis of the human condition. 
he went on to discover and then describe methods, ways, paths that can allow us to put ourselves at ease. You know, there are many paradoxes that we must live with as human beings. And one of the oddest, I think, and yet the most helpful, is that when we sit and still, we begin to look deeply at difficult and problematic situations. Our problems, we find, are not as bad as we thought. In a way, they they don't have the power over us that we imagined that they did. I'm sure you've had this experience many times of dreading some event, like uh, a job interview or the talk with your teenage son or whatever it might be, and uh, or some athletic competition, whatever it might be. And then the actual being in the situation wasn't as hard as you thought. It's what you created in your mind a lot that colored the difficulty. I mean, when we face any of our fears or our shame, we often find that they dissolve and we can in fact become free from those obsessions. We often have those moments of insight. Oh, yes, that's what that was. That's what's operating there. And of course, people discover this paradox and these insights, whether they practice Buddhist meditation or not. But the practice of meditation helps us to get in touch with the mindful awareness that allows us to see more and more clearly, to ask the questions that can help us more and more, and to act in creative and compassionate ways. Though it does seem we're hardwired, at least to what I've understood that we know now, to scare ourselves in a way to make nightmares out of the daylight because of the deep brain that's buried in our skulls that lives with us every moment, the amygdala and the limbic brain, the so-called reptile brain. It's a very non-discriminating brain, even as far as simple perception. Movement is a threat to this brain, like it is for all all other um, animals, other sentient beings. So we see the mop shadow in the garage and think it's a burglar, Or in the analogy from the Buddhist texts, we see the rope in the road and think it's a snake. And we even see chairs in our whole physical world uh, as solid when they're not really solid, but completely moving at all times on a molecular level. But, But the way our eye perception is set up, that's the way it is. But meditative awareness allows us to see more deeply. It puts, in an analogy, a kind of an electron microscope on what our experience is. 
we look more carefully and attentively and openly at our experiences. And this is true for both our inner life, our personal life, and also our outer life, our life engaged with the world. And even to describe this sense of freedom is almost paradoxical as well. Because we begin to see more subtleties and finer and finer textures in both our inner and outer life and the world around us. And at the same time, we see a broader, more expansive field. One of the inspiring things about going on retreat, as this man just spoke so eloquently about, is getting in touch with how directly we can know from the inside out all of our experience. We can know the the integration of meditative states of mind and cognitive experiences, for example, It's not that our minds stop working, not at all, but we see them in a more integrated way. We directly feel them, not just seeing them, but know them in a direct way. When we put ourselves on the cushion in chairs with the intention to still, to be open, to be aware, we see that the whole thing works together and that we do have this wonderful and mysterious quality of awareness that lets us know that. At least some of the time that happens. And it also doesn't need a retreat setting to experience this wholeness. But some form of application is necessary Sit down, we must. Stop and still. It's another kind of paradox. When we stop and still, this is the one that gives rise to the wiggle room and the possibility of creative compassion. This awareness, this mindful awareness, allows us to see the spaciousness between the conditions of our world including the conditions of change and impermanence and that we are born and will die. We begin and continue to see that we don't need to hang on for our dear lives, that our lives are excellent and full of freedom and choice just as they are. We don't need to hang on to our pain or suffering, not to the fact that we're not in control. We don't need to hang on to our illusory selves, nor our yearning for permanence. Questioning, questing, is another necessary condition of the Buddhist meditative path. To seek, to look, to ask. We bring our natural curiosity to a situation and we begin to engage with the creative aspects of our practice. When we see anger arise because someone cuts us off in the freeway and ask in some way, whatever way, 
What is this? Who am I? What am I doing with this? Other possible ways of being with that situation can occur to us. Just asking that question allows for a certain kind of space for freedom of action. In fact, in some schools of Buddhist meditation, Korean Zen, the whole practice is asking, what is this? What is this? What is this? What is this? I sat with um, Martine Batchelor not too long ago, and uh, she described her practice of that. She sat Korean Zen as a nun for many, many years. And when you ask that question as a practice over and over again for 12 or 15 years, many wonderful things open up. It's interesting that the questions that are asked are the what questions. These are the ones that are most useful and help you, helpful to us, not the why questions. The why questions are very necessary for us as human beings in very many contexts, and they're a necessary part of us to, to exist in the world. But for our meditative practice, for our spiritual practice, the what questions are the ones that really bring us to openings, to seeing the spaciousness. We see where our active participation, our active interest in questioning can lead to the myriad possibilities arising engagement with ourselves and with the world. And the Buddha's middle way describes, can be described as this kind of process, fulfilling our humanness through clearly seeing whatever situation is arising and creatively engaging with it compassionately engaging with it. And the Buddha's great gift and genius was that he described this profoundly and simply in the Four Ennobling Truths. This is a phrase that I first heard from Stephen Batchelor, ennobling, and it points to the dynamic qualities of the middle way. The truths aren't ones that we can memorize or laws handed down, but they're path pointers that we must follow in our own ways and in our own lives. And our practice is a continually unfolding process and never a place where we arrive. Or one could say it in another way, we're always arriving in that place, that place of each moment. And as we create our paths, we act with compassion in accord with the ancient truth of interrelationship. We realize more and more clearly that separation and division 
cannot bring us nor anyone else peace, ease, and freedom. As the Dhammapada, the earliest collection of Buddhist texts and sayings, long poem really, puts this, in this world, hate never yet dispelled hate. Only love dispels hate. This is the truth, ancient and inexhaustible. At certain points, through our awareness and questing, we realize directly and experientially that we're the Buddhas, not that there's a hidden Buddha mind waiting to get out, or not that we fall into some blissful or blissed out steady state. And that may happen in certain meditation situations where our concentration becomes very deep. But those states are also ephemeral and change when the conditions that gave rise to them change. What we realize is that as human beings, we share with the Buddha the equipment and potential to stop the contractions of mind and heart that he described, just as he did do. We too can stop these. As the Buddha said, all we need is contained in this fathom-long body. All we need is contained with what we have right here. He began his seeking through the four signs of sickness, old age, death, and a peaceful-looking human renunciant. The existential questions that humanity has always asked itself for as long as we know of recorded history, the dilemmas that we always faced and that we still face, birth, aging, illness, renunciation, the peaceful renunciant. What is this moment asking me to give? What is it asking me to give up? And death, of course, which reminds me of that old joke about the leading cause of death being birth. Here we are in the middle of it. We are alive. In these conjunctions of awareness and quest and compassion, we find ourselves alive and free. Asking these questions, what is it? What is it? What is this? What is this? Free to interactualize our relationship with others. Free to share our joy, our wisdom. Free to renounce what we know is unhealthy, harmful. What we know directly. free to respond to the suffering we see in ourselves and others. There's a text that's 1,200 years old from Chinese Buddhism, Chan, called the Kantong Chi. 
It's a 44-line poem full of paradox. In fact, the title, which I'll give one translation of, is called The Harmony of Difference and Unity. And it's written by Shitu Jishan, who was a Chinese Zen master. Full of beautiful imagery and paradox in every line. Suzuki Roshi um, wrote a commentary on this called Branching Streams Flow in the Darkness. It's a wonderful um, book that he wrote. And that, that image is taken from a line in the poem. And he said there something which really has struck me and stayed with me. He said, the capacity of the human mind has three aspects, potentiality, interrelationship, and appropriateness. And in our practice of meditation, we bring together these three aspects. And we find our freedom as all three aspects of us operate simultaneously through awareness, questioning, and acting. Our potential unfolds. Our possibilities of acting in the world as a Buddha, non-harming compassionately. And this potential is activated through interrelationship only through other beings. Our relationship with the world, can we know our true nature? Can we know the question, the answers to the questions we're asking? What is this? Of course, we know this at some level too, that we couldn't exist without not only our loved ones and friends and family, but in fact, everything else in the world. we can look at awareness as appropriateness, called in the early texts, clear compassion, clear comprehension. The comprehension of knowing what's really going on right now. And another way we could name appropriateness is wisdom, knowing when to share joy, when to respond to suffering. And we could call interrelationship loving-kindness. And we can touch this loving-kindness, this compassion, and act to fill it in our lives, even in those ordinary moments that make up so much of our lives. Waking, perhaps taking a vow to be mindful, to be helpful, to be friendly, perhaps doing a morning meditation, or perhaps not, making our breakfast, brushing our teeth, going to work, going to a parent-teacher meeting after school. All these moments are available to us. There's an analogy that's Robert Aitken Roshi, um, Soto Zen practitioner, uses that I like. He calls Buddhist meditation practice that is bringing together concentration and clear seeing garden tools, the simple, the homely tools that we can pick up through our meditation practice 
So when we go into the world, we can find ourselves hoeing out the distractions. We still, we recollect ourselves. And we can see where we're self-regarding and let that go, renounce that. And we can bring ourselves wholly to meet whatever is coming up in this moment. The rabbit who crosses our car late at night. The pine siskins breakfasting on the birch tree as we pour out our morning tea. The calls we need to return. A loved one's misfortune or a co-worker's happiness. The awareness, the questioning, the compassion are ours, each of ours. Suzuki Roshi also said somewhere that Buddhist practice is a way to really know ourselves. Wallace Stevens, the American poet, also said this in a different way. And I'd like to close with reading a poem of his. Not less, because in purple I descended the western day through what you called the loneliest air. Not less was I myself. What was the ointment sprinkled on my beard? What were the hymns that buzzed beside my ears? What was the sea whose tide swept through me there? Out of my mind the golden ointment rained, and my ears made the blowing sounds and hymns they heard. I was myself the compass of that sea. I was the world in which I walked, and what I saw or heard or felt came not but from myself, and there I found myself more truly and more strange. And here we are, finding ourselves, our lives. What is this? What is this awareness? What is this questioning? What is this acting? So thank you very much for listening. And I hope you have something you'd like to say. Thank you.
What a beautiful question. Thank you very much for asking that question. Um, (laughs) The question is, um, in the Korean Zen practice of asking what is this, how important is it to answer that question? And I must say that I do not have any direct experience of Korean Zen practice, but certainly... Um, what I deeply felt from the time I spent with Martine was that it's not really important to answer the question. It's, um, it's much more important to ask the question. There are always more questions than answers in our life. We never come to the end of questioning. But we have this really strong, deep impulse to always have the answer. Um, And actually, so there are two kind of parts to that. Uh, One part is the kind of renunciation part where we can let go of that itch, that craving to have the answer, that false feeling that once we have the answer, we'll be settled and finished and done with it. And then the other part is that the answers that we need arise of themselves spontaneously so that it's not a kind of an analysis but that putting ourselves in that mind where we just are questioning without expecting or wanting or analyzing any particular answer the answers arise from our life itself so that's what I understood Thank you. And uh, following up with that, it seems like asking the question over and over again, uh, I noticed that the experience after I asked the question, it keeps changing. important for me to keep noticing. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. 
I find that uh, even asking the question kind of frees me up in the situation itself. So if there's a, if I'm angry, I ask why or what am I angry at, and that distances myself from the situation, gives me freedom over it. Yes, that can help a lot. Sometimes that's all we need to just extricate ourselves from a difficult moment. Thank you. You, you, um, you point, you bring out, um, you bring out that that um, that that there are many questions. You you brought this up, and actually, the, the woman who spoke previously that it's it's we don't have to ask just that one question. What is this, or or the question that you had before? But um, we can also not hold on too tightly to the questions. And, and that form of that question, you know, really worked for you. It's uh, thank you very much. Following up on that, how do you bring that awareness to to the importance of doing throughout your day what you have to do, and in some ways. There are so many shortcuts we have to take and so many things we have to leave out in order to actually make a decision. Should I do A or should I do B? Or how do I go about and find the best activities for this day? And in some ways, everything is open. Thank you. Yes, that gets to... um that gets to that question you ask gets to um, that that this is a process and it's a process that unfolds in time so you point to the time aspect Um, it's not that we can just immediately start asking what is this in every moment and we will have the answers that arise Uh, it's a possibility though and it is an experience that many people have experienced. So 
the process is our meditation practice. It's to keep returning to developing these qualities of openness uh, and awareness of what's going on. And then, slowly, as we develop these, trust arises in us and we can trust ourselves to find those answers of the complexities uh, of our daily lives. Um, we trust that we do. And it's not that we, um, that we w- will every single time either, um, but this potentiality is always there. So we will not answer the question. I mean, we will not answer our situation. We will not act compassionately every single time. But we also have a trust that we can trust ourselves about that as well and know that we have established ourselves in this direction. Um, This is the direction we're going. This is what we're cultivating. Yes? If you have the pressure for time to resolve something, why do you do this? Well, there are many things. Um, some people do find it helpful just to stop and breathe, even one in-breath and one out-breath, completely as mindfully as possible. Some people do find that helpful. Or, as this man said, just to stop and ask the question, what is this? Time is a very interesting thing for us human beings. We often feel it's pressure and don't realize, which is a whole other subject, so I'll just touch on it briefly, but don't realize that actually there is no time. Or, as a line in a poem says, there is no time to lose. <laughs> so, we're really, uh, we have constructed time ourselves, and we can always remember that we can let go of that pressure of time. But it's a very strong habit, so, so we develop countervailing habits such as mindful meditation practice to help us remember that in the moments when time threatens to just sweep us away. Uh, and, and those little, but those little tricks like of just taking the deep breath, um, taking the deep breath and maybe and maybe asking that is the question. What is this time? What is this time? So I don't know if I've addressed fully your question, but it's what I have to offer now. Well, following up on what she's saying and the questioning aspect, if I keep asking the question, I was thinking about when I'm under pressure and what's my question. Well, I think maybe one question that comes up for me is, what's the right thing? I've got to do the right thing. But then I thought, well, that's maybe not the most helpful question for me to ask then. And uh, maybe uh, a question about just uh, how deeply can I bring myself here and let, Mm. you know, the let the right or wrong just come later instead of trying to do it before. So just asking the question under pressure and not pressure, then see what arises. 
Thank you. I think with this culture that we're in, everything is so speedy. And that to choose to sit is, is such a, um, it's a wonderful well to give spaciousness and to you call it wiggle room. But then we think, we, we're always reflecting back because everything else we're doing, is, you know, I'm on a work schedule where I have to finish something. Every hour something has to be done. Mm-hmm. But to make that spacious is, is quite an exercise. And occasionally I find it is <coughs> that way. And part of it is mastering what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. But there was a phrase in a commentary I was reading about the Dalai Lama. Someone asked him, um, what's the fastest way to enlightenment? <laughs> and he started tearing up. And he, <laughs> he said, this is not a Dharma drive through thank you thank you very much it's always been helpful for me today because I try so hard to find answers you've given me sort of a different perspective in that by just asking the question and seeing what comes up. I can stop trying so hard, and I think by trying so hard, I'm defeating the purpose of finding the answers. And so, I might try things a little bit differently to be good job today, and hopefully it will be helpful for my practice and my life in general. Thank you. I think it's time. <laughs> Let's, shall we just sit for a one minute if you'll keep time for it? Thank you.